Well, fellas, here we go with another show, number two in our new season. Uh, lots to talk about. Uh, uh, Warren, I missed I, I miss the patch, you know, and I was thinking about that today. Uh, Kevin was Kevin never made it in there, and I said, I got to ask Hanson. You must have been pretty good in your day, Warren, in the briar patch, I bet. Well, when the briar patch really started rolling, I wasn't really in a position to be spending a lot of time in the patch. So, <laughs> no, I don't have any patch stories, Jim, of my from my past. That's unfair because I got in so much trouble. You know, you're the guy who invented the whole thing, and yet we never get anything out of you. Let's, uh, although patch aside, we got a bunch of curling stuff we're going to talk about, and we're going to start to do it right now. Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right here, Last guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, boys, uh, lots to talk about. We want to thank uh, all our sponsors, including our new sponsor, uh, Meridian. Thank you very much to them. And they're going to sponsor one of my favorite segments, I think, that we've set up called Storytime. And uh, we're going to go with the biggest and the best uh, at the end of the show to talk about what was going on in 2001. So 20 years ago, if you you don't know, I'll say it this way, and then you're going to have to tune in to hear it and stay with us. Uh, How should I put it? Kevin Martin and Warren Hansen hated each other and couldn't be in the same room. <laughs> Are you going to be ready to talk about that, Kevin? Yeah, that's going to be a great discussion. Yeah, good. We're going to do that. Uh, on the show today, what's happening around the curling world? Uh, we've got a bunch of events. Kevin, you're back at it. Uh, you're going to be traveling a ton for Sportsnet. We're going to find out about that. Uh, hot topics. Talked about in the last show, a bunch of Olympic trials stuff. Uh, and, and we looked at the men and women. Uh, for the trials and uh, this week we're going to talk about mixed doubles uh, mailbag you can email us uh, inside curling at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you we got a couple of guys who weighed in this week uh, we're going to do that and of course our guest coming up i love this guy uh, our, our guest is going to be brendan botcher uh, so, uh, Kevin, uh, we want to talk about what's going on in the, in the curling world, and we'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Sports Interaction. Uh, Around the Curling World is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, and you got to be older enough to do it, right? you got to be over 19. I like the action. Do you like the action a little bit, Kev? Do you, do you, <laughs> yeah, no? and I am over 19, so uh, it's safe <laughs> with me. Uh, yeah, let's talk about a couple of the events uh, around the globe here. Um Probably the best field, or the best uh, field uh, is the new floors Penticton outside of the Grand Slams. And in the final, uh, no big surprise, Nicholas Adin from Sweden in the final against, this is the interesting part, Glenn Howard again. So Glenn Howard, 59 years young. It's just amazing. And uh, actually Warren and I were going like, the way Glenn's curling right now, He's, he's bound to be in the trials. He's just curling too well. And could we have a 59-year-old uh, represent Canada in the Olympic Games? It's interesting to watch just how good Glenn is right now. But he was uh, he was actually he played the game very well. He's one down going home, but only managed to get one. And then Nicodine won in the extra end. So a really good final out in Penticton. And uh, the curling masters in uh, Champery in, in Switzerland, um, Joel Returnez, and the reason people know that name is uh, he's been to the Olympics twice, I believe 2006 and 2018 out of Italy. And uh, Stefan Wallstad played in the final. And Wallstad, of course, out of Norway, has played in the Worlds four times. Did not play in 2018 in the Olympics. I kind of thought he would, but Thomas Olsrud ended up going. But uh, it was a tie game coming home, actually. And uh, Stefan Wallstad had the hammer. God has won to win 5-4. So two big events. Uh, one in Canada, one in uh, in Switzerland, and uh, but you know what? We're getting close to Olympic trials and Olympics, and guess what? The uh, 
the cream is rising to the top, but I'll tell you what, it's exciting to watch Glenn Howard. And I'd like to hear your thoughts, Warren, because uh, this is interesting. Like Glenn's playing good enough that uh, <laughs> he could make some noise at the trials. Yes, without question. I'm looking at the three teams that he played once they qualified, and it was Colton Flash, Matt Dunstan, and Karsten Sturmey. So all three of those teams are up-and-comers, very close to being near the top, and uh, he took out all three of them. Also another interesting stat, if we look over time, going back to 2010, Glenn has played Adin 25 times. Adin has won nine, but Glenn has won 16 of those games. So certainly I, I would think in the last two or three years it has probably swung in Adin's favor, but uh, he's done very well against that team over time, and who knows? Uh, the way that team is rolling, they could they could get it going, and that could provide a very interesting situation come middle of November. And pretty impressive, Kevin. Uh, he was injured, right? And some people were saying his career may be done. Yeah, he crashed his uh, snowmobile before the Briar last year, and that's why Wayne Madaw came in, because Glenn had, I think, once again, I could be incorrect, but I thought it was bruised ribs or broken ribs or like, and, and some problems with the back, and oh my goodness. But uh, yeah, no, playing tremendous now, and uh, 59 years old, it's a, it's a, it's a great story, and uh, wouldn't that be some kind of story to have uh, Glenn Howard head to the Olympics? It'd be uh, amazing. How does an old guy, uh, Kevin, do it? How is he able to keep up that pace? being able to curl at that level at that age well i don't know there's no answer to that because i don't know if anybody else has ever done it like you know we've watched some uh players in golf at around 50 years old they can be in the hunt for the first you know two or three rounds but tend to peter out in the fourth and but that's around 50 years old not 59 so i, I don't know the answer um I'd love to hear from somebody. Email us if you can think of examples of somebody that can compete at the very highest level. This is this is in Penticton. This is a new floors event. This this field is, is just about as good as any Grand Slam. And we've got Glenn in the final and, and actually only one down with Hammer. So actually had control coming home, just couldn't uh, couldn't get the deuce. But boy, oh boy, it's, it's a story. I mean, physically is one thing. What I find very interesting is the mental aspect and I mean both you and I were there and you lasted a lot longer than I did but certainly by the time I got into my late 30s uh, it was becoming very difficult to get up for it anymore to get yourself pumped up to be able to compete day after day week after week and I know that's in, in a lot of pro sports when athletes get older it's not so much the physical end of it they, they can't continue with it becomes the mental part of it and to be able to continue to get that aspect going the way you need to to win up until your late 50s is quite remarkable do you ever have the itch kevin when you hear this story uh how old are you no first of all uh, me i'm 55 but you know no i don't get <laughs> i don't get the itch no none um not a bit I, I tell you what like after 2010 in vancouver i was actually to warren's point mentally i was kind of mentally ready to shut her down but we had such a good team um, in 2010 and tremendous sponsorship and, and great friends that were supporting us. So I ended up playing four more years, but not the sharpest. I just wasn't able to, I tried um, physically, like I, I worked out hard and, and physically no problem. And I could, I could get up for the big games, but you got to get to the big game. And in the round robins and stuff, I just wasn't as sharp as I should have been. And it's just kind of mentally not, the same and that's where glenn it just it's amazing to me that he can stay focused and excited um at this age it's it's, it's terrific i couldn't have done it there's no way i uh, just my brain and the way i am i just there's no way i was moving on to other things and i love where i am now the doing the commentating i just absolutely love it and it's still involved in our, our the sport that i love but it's just a different way of looking at it he worked his whole career in a beer store right glenn howard Right, that was his, so. Maybe that, maybe, <laughs> maybe he's drinking the product all those years kept him <laughs> kept him sharp. Uh, anyway, good good luck to him. Uh, there is a big event coming up uh, this week. It's the first Pinty's Grand Slam event of the year. The Masters at the 16 Mile Sports Complex in Oakville, Ontario. This event will involve 16 of the top men's and 16 of the top women's teams uh, in the world, playing for 150k. Kev. You sure that's not enough to get you want to come back? That's a lot of bread, okay? Uh, we'd, we'd love to see you down there, but if you can't make it, you can watch all the action live on Sportsnet. Kev, the Masters is coming up. We want your pick. Sports Interaction, by the way, is uh, one of our sponsors. Uh, I like the action. So we need your favorites. Kev, uh, what are your picks for the Masters? 
Well, you know what? With us getting close to November and getting near the Olympic trials, I think the Canadian teams have put in a huge amount of effort. So I would like to lean a little bit more towards the Canadian teams, not just in the first slam, but even the second in Chestermere. So let's let's uh, be looking a little bit more towards Jennifer Jones. Would love to get back to one more Olympic Games. Rachel Holman, she would love to get to another Olympics and, and uh, you know, move up the uh, standings a little bit compared to Pyeongchang. On the men's side, I know that Team Botcher has been putting in a, a ton of work and don't count out Brad Jacobs because he started off on fire as well this year. So those are my picks in the Masters no-fill. Uh, last week, and uh, we, we've talked about this over uh, many shows, the Olympic trials and how to qualify for it. Um, you know, men's and women's we covered last week, but now it's time to talk about the mixed doubles qualifying. Warren, what do you got to say about all that? So mixed doubles, I always say, you know, it's Olympic medal sport and the color of the gold medal is the same for mixed doubles as it is for men's and women's. And it's worth the same amount, but it doesn't seem to get the same respect. Anyway, we haven't heard a lot about mixed doubles. So I thought today we'd bring everyone up to speed on what's going on with the determination of how we're going to send Canadian teams to Beijing to play in mixed doubles. So we do know for sure there's going to be a trials that's going to be held in Portage La Prairie. Interesting timing. It's going to start December 28th and end on January 2nd. So, Jim, if you want to have a good New Year's celebration, get down to Portage La Prairie for the mixed doubles trials. There's going to be six teams teams split into two eight-team pools. Two pool winners plus the next four best win-loss records qualify for a six-team modified double knockout playoff. And, of course, the team that wins in the end will end up going to the Olympics. Another interesting thing to note, that if you end up being a member of the four-person teams going to Beijing, you are not eligible to play in the mixed doubles. So the 16 teams, where are they going to come from? I'll try and give you a quick rundown to where things sit at the moment. I believe there's seven teams of mixed doubles have already qualified. Uh, four of them were determined last May from the Canadian rankings. So Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang, Jocelyn Peterman, Brett Gallant, Nancy Martin, Tywell Griffith, Rachel Holman, John Morris. Those are all names that have been fairly familiar to us in the mixed doubles playoffs over the last few years. There was two more teams that were qualified from the 2021 Mixed Doubles Championship. Um, this was the finalist teams in the Canadian Championship last year. As we know, Carrie Edison and Brad Gushu were the, were the winners. Adriana Sadiak and Colton Lott were the runners-up, so they've also qualified. And there was a competition held in Martinsville, Saskatchewan in the middle of September, and Lisa Weagle and John Epping qualified out of that one. There was another event held in Banff just a couple of weeks ago. It was supposed to qualify another team, but John Morris and Rachel Holman won that. And the way it was set up, that if uh, a team won that was already qualified, they'd take the next best team in up to the top four. But interesting enough, the final four all were either not eligible or had already qualified. So as a result, no one qualified out of that event. So they have to come up with uh, nine more teams that will be done uh, through the various ranking processes and determined by December 14th. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how the mixed doubles trials for the Olympics in Beijing, Beijing are going to happen. Warren, this sounds awfully complicated. Okay, all this stuff. I'm trying. I was. I'm madly writing down what you're saying to me. I'm like, okay. What did this guy? They got to go there. They got to do that. We got to get Kevin's uh, comment on this. We'd like. To, we'd like to thank Coyote Tractor, uh, sponsoring this segment. Uh, they're a proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs, who we know well, and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Kevin, are you smart enough to suss all this out for us? All these qualifying angles and permutations. Uh, no, I'm not. I, I tried. I uh, I knew that Warren was, uh, thank goodness, Warren was uh, bringing up this topic and talking about it, but I wanted to sound somewhat smart. So I went digging last night and I couldn't find an, enough of the information. So thank you, Warren, because uh, if if uh, if Jimmy would have thrown it to me, it would have been a long silence. <laughs> but, but 16 teams, uh, the bottom line with the mixed doubles, in my opinion, is you know, the top players are the top players in our sport. And once the men's and women's has been decided, it'll be a lot clearer as to who uh, who will still have a chance um, to, to to represent Canada in, in Beijing. And, and uh, you know, I, I love the mixed doubles. I just, I wish it was more on the front page than sort of a, um, for the top players an add-on. And, uh, you know, I guess it'll come. It'll come. It's just, uh, 
it's taken a while and uh, and it's a it's absolutely a discipline that I enjoy watching it's a lot of fun and the skill level is really high for the teams that that do well at it I think the top top teams in Canada need to get together and sit down with uh, curling Canada and they got to figure out a way of how they're going to make all this happen going forward I think there has to be more events created and there has to be a way of uh, being able to be a four-person uh, player as well as a mixed doubles player with without them clashing and I think that's going to take a bit of organization there's going to be some players as well that are only going to play mixed doubles there's a few now and I think that's something that you want to encourage going forward to particularly I think if you're from a smaller part of of the country I think this is where teams from possibly Atlantic Canada can put together probably a, a good mixed doubles team that can be very competitive so I think it requires a little more thinking to go into it a little more work and organizing it all and to some degree i think right now it's kind of by chance few teams are created that are specializing mixed doubles but for the most part it's kind of the top players well once we've got this out of the way maybe we'll play in this as well but it's not their priority so i think it's something going forward it has to be looked at a little more seriously what what would you do warren to fix it you know, Jim, I'm I'm not totally sure. I think it's a matter of sitting down and taking a look at the objectives, what they want to do, how they want to do it. It's creating events, is determining how uh, you can play in four-person curling and mixed doubles as well without them without them conflicting. And I think it's going to take a little bit of thought process. And I think as well, you want to encourage, as I suggested, the people who are going to become mixed doubles specialists. You know what, guys? I think that there, there's a, a meeting that needs to happen, and and that's a few different arms to this uh, this octopus. One of them is the scheduling of events worldwide. We need players to be involved, and it can't be like elected players from around the world be involved in this decision. That way, you have the big four-person events staying in certain regions for two or three weeks, not where you play once in Switzerland, the next week you're in Vancouver, the next week you're in Toronto, the next week you're back in, in, in Asia somewhere. That doesn't work. Like We've got to make sure that the first two or three weeks, the top teams are playing in, in, in Asia or in Europe or in Eastern Canada or in Western Canada. And then you can shoulder program mixed doubles events with those events because the top players are already there. And that way you could have the big events. They could be streamed, no problem. You could even broadcast them. And that way the teams are already there. The, the top players are already there in the men's and the women's. And the big problem with people just specializing in mixed doubles is marketing. Right now, it's quite lucrative if you're a top curling team um, as a four-person team. There's not the marketing potential, the, the promotion potential for a mixed doubles team. So... If you're one of the top players in Canada, you're not going to only play mixed doubles because you're losing a lot of money doing it. When there's a day when the sponsorship for mixed doubles is the same as four-person playing, absolutely you'll see specialists uh, that are top players. But right now, that's just not, that's just not ma the math doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, this is the other reason why a player's association is so important, and this is their number one task as far as I'm concerned. They've got to get themselves together as a worldwide group in this whole scheduling of events and how the events are going to be sanctioned by them as to what you have to do to have, a, have an event that will be uh, player sanctioned. Uh, all these things need to be worked out. And until they get a united voice that they're speaking as a unit rather than individually and begin to work with organizers and doing all this stuff, I think it's going to continue to be confused. Maybe they've got to do this in concert with the World Curling Federation because I think they can play a role in that too. But I think the key thing is, again, it's, and it's not just Canada, it's worldwide that this has to be coordinated. And it's a huge task, and I think that's, again, why we need a players group. Uh, yeah, if you'd like to weigh in on that, we'd love to hear from you, insidecurling at gmail.com. That brings us to our next segment and some comments from a, a couple of uh, emailers. The Inside Curling Mailbag is brought to you by Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. So talk of all this Olympic trials. Uh, people have, we've got a great Facebook group and uh, we've had some comments from a couple of guys. Uh, you guys did talk about this, the idea of the pre-trials uh, and what your thoughts were on it. Mark Keane uh, has emailed, and he's no slouch, Kevin. This guy's been to the Briar, I think. Uh, we were talking yesterday in the last four or five years, I believe. Yes, Mark Keane's a good player. Absolutely. Uh, he writes us uh, and says, but what is the issue with having the pretrials? I just don't get the thought process behind removing it. If you can give some good reasons for removing it, then great. But I don't think there's enough evidence to show it shouldn't be there. We've never had a pretrials team not win a medal. In fact, they have never not won gold. 
Can't say that about our quote-unquote elite teams who take a salary before the season starts. You're putting teams in a must-win format to get a shot in another must-win format for a trip to the Olympics, which is another uh, must-win format. Remove the pre-trials, and it's just another item that those juniors look at and say there is no system. Uh, Kev, you go first. Pre-trials, does it need to be? Well, they keep bringing up Gushu as a pre-trials team, but there wasn't, Warren, there wasn't pre-trials in, in 05. No, I think their point is that Brad was Brad was very low ranked in 2006. Um, sure, but he earned his way to the trials under the existing rules at the time. So, so that doesn't really count. And then if you're talking about 2013, they're talking about Brad Jacobs being a pre-trials team. Well, the problem with that was he was the Briar champ in 2013 in the spring. And like so often, top teams, when they win something huge, they have that drop where you kind of drop off for a little while. And that's what happened to Brad Jacobs. That's the only reason he was in the pre-trials. There's no question. They were not a pre-trials team. They, were, they had just won the Briar. They're a top team. And then you're talking about Gushu being in the pre-trials. Well, same thing. He had a, a disappointing year. Well, that's okay. And he got to it, but he was a top team. And of course, John Morris won the 2010 Olympics. So, you know, you're talking about uh, three of the best curling names in the history of our sport being in that pre-trials. But had there not have been a pre-trials that year, guess the, t the teams that would have ended up being in the trials. It would have been those three. So um, I don't, I don't carry, I don't think that carries a lot of, water for me like i know that when we brought this up last week you know a lot of people set their hair on fire on our facebook group i just i don't see the reason to have a top team play like a top ranked team play the odds of them winning is better that doesn't mean they're going to win every time some people saying well there's no guarantee of winning well you're right there's no guarantee you've got nicodine and de cruz and and all these tremendous players that are, are waiting, Bruce Mowat waiting for you at the Olympic Games. So no, there's no guarantee of winning. But what increases the Canada's odds to winning the best? Well, over three years, the teams that are the most consistent will likely be the most consistent at the Olympic Games. It's just simple math. And to think that a team can come up out of 12th to 14th rank and, and win one week, it's possible. But does that mean that the odds are best for that team to be the strongest at the Olympics? This is, we're talking about, about a podium finish here. That's what this is all about. And I think the odds are that if the top ranked teams, because they have to be consistent year after year after year to be a top ranked team, that's who we as a nation want to see in the Olympic Games. And I, and I just don't understand the argument. I think uh, this is a broad topic and it goes back to, the system. And to some degree, there is no system. You and I talked yesterday about, you know, I can go back a long ways and you can go back a long ways, not as far as I can. But I mean, we all grew up in a situation where how did you become a good player? And I can remember, as I said yesterday, Kevin, the first time I entered a Briar Zone play down many, many years ago, um, I was 21 years old and I'm playing in this thing. I have no idea probably why, because uh, there's no chance of me winning. Uh, am I going to gain some experience? I, I, I suppose a bit, but basically you go out there and you play two, maybe you get lucky and win one game, you play three, and you get your butt handed to you in a platter, and you say, well, I played in the in the playdowns. But what did I really gain or learn from that? How, how do you progress to become a top a top athlete in curling? And it seems like, you know, if I go back to the old days, and if you talk to some of the younger people now, it's the same way now to a very large degree. you you got to get beat up. Um, probably for three or four years. If you keep struggling at it, you, you might get some foothold if you got the time and the resources to do all that. But there's really nothing in place that's helping uh, these better players get their, their feet under them. Um, it's still very much being done by chance. So so to Brad Keane's question, there, there really is no system. And I, I mean, I look at the pre-trails now, and it's kind of like the American Hockey League. Most of the teams in there are either on their way up or their way down. There's a number of very young teams in there that are the future. If I look at, at the women's side, Zacharias, Peterson, Duncan, Brown, over in the men's side, Tardy, Sturme, Hardy, Horgan, to some degree Flash, um, these are teams that are on their way up. Then you got Howard, you got Simmons on the men's side, you got McCarville on the women's side. These are older teams. All three of them, if they got it going, do have the potential to be right there and could get into trials and give a lot of people a lot of grief. 
But I still ask the question, is this the best way of, of bringing teams into the future? Maybe there needs to be more of a concentrated effort of creating more events that these up-and-coming teams can play in. Yes, they need to be playing against some of these good teams on occasion, but not that being as their sole and only way of getting to the top. I think there needs to be development camps done for them. We, we did one back in 1987 because of the, of the bruja that centered around it. It ended, yet survey done at the end of those trials uh, camps in 1987, 75% of the players were in favor, and it evaluated every player. So there was at least a, a book out there on them that you knew where their strengths were, where their weaknesses are, what they needed to do to get better, and there was people working with them. And so I think, you know, we're, we're still dealing here with a system that uh, goes back to the days of McDonald Tobacco starting the Briar in 1927, whereas a bunch of people enter events and somebody at the end comes out and wins, and more or less that's kind of what we're still doing. You talk about pre-trials. Um, I think I was the pre, I was a pre-trials team in 92 going to the Olympics. If you remember back to 91, We'd won the Canadian Junior in 85, but really a couple of bond spiels, but hadn't won much till 91, won Provincials, and then went to the Briar. Didn't even know that the Briar winner was going to the Olympics. I didn't even know until the game was over. And all of a sudden, here we are. We're the Olympic team, and we're a bunch of kids. Hadn't won much. And all of a sudden, the world is on our shoulders, and we're not prepared for that. We didn't have any kind of structure behind us. I didn't have a PR person, didn't have an agent. I had nothing. I, we were just a bunch of kids. And, you know, it was just devastating to us from a curling standpoint, a mental standpoint, being in that Olympics. We weren't ready to be in that Olympics. We were not the right team. Um, we did win the Briar, so we came up with a good week, but but we weren't the best team. The best team was Russ Howard's team with Glenn Howard and Wayne Madaw and Peter Corner. They were the best team. They just didn't play very good the week of the Briar. Um, we ended up fourth place. We didn't get on the podium. Should we have gotten a podium? Probably not. We were, we were really young, and, and uh, you know, it, it knocked the heck out of us. I remember in 1993, we didn't win a thing. I was just done. I'd lost, uh, what the heck was it? I, I went, I'm went. i always about 210 pounds. I always have been. I finished that Olympics at 167, skin and bone. So, you need boost. You know, <laughs> I need boosting. I needed boost. I needed a bunch of boost. Yeah. And, you know, and so you know, it was just, we weren't, the, we weren't ready. And that's what I worry about the way we're running it now is that, yes, some of these teams could do it. You know, like a Tyler Tardy, what a talent. This kid is amazing. And if he gets on a roll, he, he, he could win. And that would be great. I'd cheer like crazy for him. But let's give him five, ten years. And, and when he does go to the Olympics, which he probably will, I don't know how you'd ever stop Tyler Tardy from getting there. But I mean, he might not, might not be ready right now. And it's important and, and for our Canadian uh, group to get on the podium. It's really important from a funding standpoint in curling. So that's just my feelings on it. I've, I was the pre-trials team. So that's why I think I can speak from experience. And I know we weren't ready in 92. Um, and 10 years later in 02, when we got our second try at the Olympics, we were ready. I was much older and, and more experienced. And, and we were ready. And sure enough, we got on the podium. And I think that's the way we need to look at this thing. Uh, very good, boys. Uh, time for our guest coming up on the show, your Briar champion, Brendan Bocci. Our guest this week is Brendan Botcher, brought to you by Goldline. It's in the house of the segment. Uh, a market leader in curling equipment, Goldline has been creating and selling innovative new curling equipment since 1967 and can be found in curling clubs all over the world. Whether you're just stepping on the ice for the first time or competing for a gold medal, Goldline equipment can be found at all levels of play. And we want to welcome in Brendan Botcher. How are you? The Botcher, the Botchinator. How are you, Brendan? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. How are you, Jerome? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Congratulations on the... Uh, uh, Briar Championship, Brendan. Uh, bring us up to speed. First of all, what have you guys been doing? Do you take the trophy around, Brendan, when you when you win it? Yeah, we were we were fortunate. Uh, we were able to get the trophy for a little bit, which was nice because you know we won, but none of our friends and family sponsors, no one was able to be in Calgary watching us because we were down in the bubble. So it was actually quite nice. We got the trophy for a few months, got to do all the kind of fun stuff, uh, and and have a little bit of fun, which is I think important too to to enjoy enjoy the success when you get it. Yeah, one of the things I remember 
uh, most about when you won that briar, of course. Um, Donnie Bartlett, who we had on the show, and uh, he was super emotional ab- about the, the whole championship and his life with curling. And, uh, um, of course, you would have experienced that firsthand. How, how was he that night when, when you guys won it? You know, Don's, uh, Don's a really special person, as I think Kevin can uh, attest to. Um, it'd be hard to find a, a nicer, more down-to-earth person on this planet. Um, and he was just so genuinely happy for us. Uh, you could just, you could just see it on his face. He, he lit up the room. Um, he made it a really special experience for us. You know, he's lived that situation a couple of times. And it was, it was just really cool, um, being there with him and having him be a part of that experience. I thought it was, it was just outstanding. And how have you spent your time, Brendan, since you've won the, the Briar, uh, when we talked to you last time? Are, are you a golfer like a lot of curlers? I am. Yeah. Uh, probably not as good of a golfer as some of the other curlers you have on this podcast, but <laughs> I do get out quite a bit. Um, but the summer was good. So we were down in the bubble for eight weeks. So I think we all took a much deserved break once we got back. Um, had actually quite a long summer this year because curling didn't start up quite as early as it has some of the seasons past. Um, so got in quite a bit of golfing, quite a bit of downtime. I work full time, so my summer was pretty busy in in that respect. Um, and now for the last month or so, we've been back trying to get ready, trying to ramp up, and hopefully peak again at the trials here in about five weeks. And of course, uh, the Masters uh, is your uh, big event coming up. And Kevin, uh, you've played in some big events. Uh, we're going to talk to Brendan about the Masters. You, <laughs> yes, we are. And but first, I want to bring up the Botcher Golf Game because I actually golfed a few times with Brendan this summer. And I think last week Brendan shot a seventy-seven, uh, beating Donnie B by quite a few actually. And he hits this hits this long baby fade actually, and. Uh, and it's pretty deadly around the green, so pretty a little bit better player than maybe uh, letting on a little bit. But you, you know that was kind of funny, Kevin. I got married on uh, August twenty first, and I don't think I had swung a golf club since then. Just between the wedding and being so busy afterwards, and then the start of curling season, and Don twisted my arm to get one more round in before we, uh, you know, clean the clubs, put them away, and then happened to be the best best round of my summer so i'm not sure if that was just luck or maybe that's the ticket i don't know well i'll tell you this brendan nothing will test a marriage more than a guy playing golf three or four times a week so good luck with that (laughs) well you know i'm fortunate because bobby plays as well so uh if you can get out there and do it together it makes it a bit easier brilliant that's a good idea uh masters kevin I was just going to say, but who who actually cleans their golf clubs before they put them away? I don't, I don't, I don't think my gloves have ever seen being cleaned. But but let's talk about the Masters here. Let's talk about the Masters. Uh, big event. But you guys haven't played very much, uh, Brendan, this year. And, uh, you know, before we talk about, I guess, talking about the Masters, but also about your strategy as to how much you've played. And then, of course, how important the Masters is uh, this week. Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of the teams that started this season knowing they were in the trials, um, you've seen a a bunch of different approaches out of those top teams. Really, what all of us are trying to do is figure that magic formula to be able to peak our absolute best at the end of November. Um, Our team focuses a lot on practice and a lot on making sure we're ready off the ice, have all kind of the details in our, our lives sorted out. Um, so for us, I wanted to take it a little bit lighter this fall. One of the events we've played, we brought our alternate Pat Jansen in, worked him through the lineup a little bit, just to give everyone even a bit more of a break. And now I think this will be the first event where all six of us will be down here. So Don's coming, Pat's coming. It's kind of our first run as a, as a solid team at a good event this year. And this will be a good measuring stick for us. Um, I'm not expecting us to, you know, obviously we want to go out there and win, but in the process towards getting ready for the trials. I think we got to come out here and use it as a measuring stick, see where we're at. And hopefully we've got a few, you know, gaps that we can fill in the next couple of weeks and then we'll be ready to go. We've been trying for two or three shows now, uh, Brendan, we've been trying to break down how teams qualify for Olympic tri- trials, uh, the worlds and all this other stuff. And uh, Kevin and I have been trying to do the math and we can't do it, but Warren knows all about it. Uh, Warren, there's a big event coming up in Lacombe. Yes, I think we need to give a little background, and it's going to be the America's Cup, I guess, is going to be the term to some degree, but it really isn't. So to qualify for a world championship, there's uh, three 
zones in the world. There's Europe, there's the Americas, and there's Pacific Asia. And when you go into men's worlds or women's worlds, eight of those teams come from the European Championship. Three of them come from the Asia Pacific Championship, and two come from the Americas. Notice I said Americas, North and South. And so usually Canada has finished in the World Championship the year prior ahead of the United States. So more often than not, they've gotten the automatic spot to play into the World Championship the following year. But this year it's a little different because the World Men's is in Las Vegas. And as a result, as it being the host country, the United States gets a direct entry. So that means if anybody else in the Americas wants to challenge to get into the World Men's Championship, it's Canada who has to be challenged. And that's what's happening in Lacombe next weekend. And the fact that Canada is being challenged by two countries, Mexico and Brazil. And of course, the winner that comes out of that will represent the Americas as the second team in the World Championship in Las Vegas next April. So as we mentioned, Lacombe is going to be the playoff site. The dates are October 29, 20, uh, 29 to 31. And Brennan Botcher, last year's Briar champion, who is our guest this morning, has been selected by Curling Canada to represent Canada at this competition. It'll be a double round robin with no playoff. And of course, the winner will gain entry to the World's Men's in Las Vegas. So Brennan, how do you feel about this whole thing? And tell us uh, what your thoughts are going into this. And do you know anything about those two teams you're going to be playing? So I, I don't know much about the two teams we're going to be playing. Um, I think I can speak to our experience at the Worlds. Uh, a lot of these teams are a lot better than we think they are. Uh, so definitely that's the mind frame going in. I'm fully expecting they're going to be competitive games. We're going to have to play well to win. I think the whole concept of the challenge is awesome. I think it's great to get another Canadian team putting a maple leaf on their back for another week playing an international field. You know, I, I think by my calculation, this will be the last challenge because after this year, they're moving to a new model where Canada will have to compete against all the Pacific Rim countries every season to get a spot at the World Championship, which again, I think is outstanding. I think we need to be getting our Canadian teams as much of that experience as possible. And that'll help us all when we eventually hopefully make it to Worlds and Olympics and all of those events. The fact that you've had more athletes curling with a maple leaf on their back is definitely going to be helpful. When you curled, Kev, were there any of the uh, were teams starting to come in uh, outside of North America when you when you started? It must have been, I'm, I'm guessing it must have been right around that time. Well, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Brazil has a team. I'll tell you why. Is that in 2010, uh, after the Olympics, out of all the nations, so all the, the texts and the emails and, and, uh, and even <laughs> handwritten letters back in the day um, that we received, uh, most of them, of course, the, the biggest proportion were out of Canada, of course. The second biggest nation to reach out to us was Brazil. There's something in the culture, there's something there that really draws uh, the people of Brazil to curling. And I don't know the answer to it, um, but it doesn't surprise me that they're in the America's Cup because uh, all the way back to 2010, which is quite a while ago now, um, they were very interested in uh, in the sport. So it's kind of uh, kind of funny that uh, that you know we're talking about Mexico and Brazil and and going back those years. That's where a lot of the uh, the interest uh, from our team in the Olympics in Vancouver came from. So kind of neat. Um, I certainly am like Brandon, hoping that the the growth continues, and uh, there aren't just two teams fighting against U.S. or Canada, but more. It's, it's definitely healthy. Warren, we want to ask Brendan about the rule changes that the WCF is coming up with. Um, first of all, explain those three uh, rules, Warren, uh, changes that they want to do, and, and let's get Brendan to uh, comment on that. Yes, we, of course, talked with Graham Prouse, the Vice President for North America of the World Curling Federation last week in depth about these rules. There's been a lot of chatter on uh, social media about it in the past week after that discussion. A couple of teams have come up and stated fairly clearly they're not too too much in favor of them all. But let's just review what they all are. The no-tick rule. Basically, they're going to try this as an experiment in next uh, year's World Championships in 2022. The no-tick rule is going to mean that for the first five shots of every end, if a stone is touching the center line, it can't be ticked off. This is all aimed at trying to create a little more offense, a little more aggression, make things a little less predictable. The four-minute rule. Basically, what they're going to introduce is the first five ends of the 10-end game will be four minutes in length, and you can't go over that. And if you do go over it, the other team will uh, be able to complete the end if they have time left, and uh, whatever points are scored when their time runs out will will belong to them. 
And that's going to be for the first five ends. For the second five ends, it's going to be four hours and 15, or four minutes and 15 seconds is going to be in the last five ends. The one that's probably the most controversial that I've seen so far is the suggestion that during the round robin, there's not going to be any extra ends. And the way a tie is going to be settled is by a single rock shootout at the conclusion of the game. Uh, interesting uh, move. I think we, to some degree, all understand that rule, why they're going in that direction, but very interested in getting Brendan's take on, first of all, let's talk about the tick rule. What do you think about that one? The no tick rule I'm in favor of. I think in the last handful of years, you've seen that tick shot get made more and more and more to the point where the top teams are making it the vast majority of the time. It's no longer really a gamble to play the tick, whereas maybe five or eight years ago, the team playing the tick, there was a significant risk that they might miss it one or two or three times in 10. Whereas now it seems like it's made, the rocks are so good, the ice is so good, the players have had a decade playing it now, it's made almost all the time. So that really takes away a lot of the excitement in those last couple ends when the team makes two ticks and the the game's essentially over. And I think curling, like a lot of sports, is trying to figure out how to make that last two minutes of the broadcast the most exciting, right? Because you need the hook to keep all your viewers watching. And I think this no-tick rule has the potential to do that. Uh, As a team that's, you know, leading on the scoreboard, it means you're going to have to make some harder shots at the end. You can't rely on your lead to make two tick shots and then just draw the eight foot and the game's done. Now, you know, your second's going to have to make a couple precise shots. Maybe your third has to make a run back for the skip to be able to draw the eight foot. Or, you know, maybe those shots aren't made and all of a sudden the skip has to make a really good shot to win. So interesting enough, if we look at some statistics, that uh, extra ends in the last probably 10 years have become very predictable. And I think it's probably the tick shot that's uh, been the reason for that. In fact, almost 80% of the time, the team with the hammer ends up winning, where even 10, 12 years ago, it was like 65%, I believe. So I think that has had a huge impact on who's going to win going into extra end. Do you think that that has an impact or has had an impact on the strategy as you probably get after the sixth end and jockeying for that, uh, for that uh, last rock coming home? Um, is the fact that uh, forcing an extra end, knowing that you have got an 80% chance of winning, has that been part of the strategy? Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think um, if you think back to about four years ago at the last trials, um, when you get into those biggest moments, at and if you rewatched a lot of the games at the last trials, that's when teams are typically taking the least amount of risk. They don't want to give away anything at that moment. And you saw ticks early in games. You saw a whole bunch of ends blanked early in games. There was there were quite a few more blanks than there had been in regular tour curling uh, at the last trials. And I think. Um, Teams are very confident they'll make those ticks almost all the time. The end is essentially a blank. Um, and in the interest of, you know, the TV quality of the product we're trying to sell, um, too many blank ends kind of hurts that quality. Um, so I think uh, in that respect, the no-tick rule will help generate a little bit more offense, keep it a little bit more exciting. You still might end up with blank ends, but they, the, you'll get there a different way. And I think that way might be a little more entertaining for the viewer. Um, and I'll actually take a, a confrontational opinion on the second rule. Uh, I'm open to trying the no extra end rule. I'm not going to paint it with a, a brush that it's bad before I've given that one a fair shot. I think I understand the value why it's good for the TV broadcast. It tightens the window that, that they have to, to work with. So I understand that. I also think at the end of the game, often uh, you're playing for that extra end to some extent. So if I'm a team that's leading, um, I'm willing to give away a couple of those points as long as I have hammer tied within the extra. So if you change to a world where all of a sudden the extra ends eliminated, I'm going to try a little harder to win that game in eight or win that game in 10, because all of a sudden the draw to the button is far closer to a 50-50 event than the extra end was at 85 or 90% for the team with the hammer. So I'm going to try and avoid ending up at that draw situation. I'll try and win. I'll try and push a little bit harder to win in regulation. Um, And maybe that as well increases the quality of that last end and increases the product that we're trying to sell on TV. This rule is the one as an athlete we haven't tried as much. 
So I think you could argue whether or not the World Championship is a good venue to be trialing a rule like this. But I think in general, we should be open-minded as athletes to this. I think there could be upside. It could make the game a little more exciting. Um, and I'm open to trying it. Well, the extra end, that's interesting. And I agree with Brendan. It's going to be the, the topic of conversation for sure. Um, one, of, one of the big reasons, I think, is probably because there's not going to be any tiebreakers. So the discussion is, okay, if there are not going to be any tiebreakers, then how do we make the round robin so there won't be as many ties? Well, a way to do that is to have a win, a win draw, a lose draw, and a complete loss. And for, you know, zero, one, two, three. And therefore, there probably will be some tie games, which means a draw to the button, the winner gets two points versus a clean win at three. I, I think it will get rid of some of the tiebreak headache um, where you have a bunch of ties and then people are eliminated by the draw of the button distance. So um, it, it alleviates that pain a little bit, but we'll see. I, you know, we, we would certainly, at least from my point of view, not like to see the strategy of our sport change. I think that, that could be a problem. But if it doesn't change too much and it alleviates the tie break issue in the round robin, it might be a good idea. But, you know, I, proof will be in the pudding and let's, let's wait and see a couple of events and, and see how the uh, strategy is affected. So interesting on those two. So the timing rule, what do you think of that one, Brennan? And, and of course, again, I think to some degree that's been to stop teams from banking time in early ends. And I know sometimes it seems that's what they're doing, but maybe it isn't in the first couple of ends, they zip the rocks up and down and uh, finish them very quickly. So this maybe will eliminate that and uh, certainly place as much emphasis from a timing point of view on the latter ends as the early ends. But what do you think of that whole thing? Yeah, so on this one, I'll take a much more popular opinion. I am unequivocally against this rule. Uh, we tried this. The athletes hated it. TV hated it. The officials hated it. Everyone across the board hated it. It got shelved very quickly when we trialed it. Um, and the reason is you're actually rushing the wrong part of the end. So, or the wrong part of the game, I should say. So what's valuable from a TV content, from a playing content, from a commentating content is those last couple shots at the end. That's really where you want teams to be taking your time so that the commentators like Kevin have a couple minutes to talk through the options, to draw the lines on the screen, to, to get everyone excited and get all that hype before the last shot is thrown. And under these new rules, those are the shots that get rushed every single end. And you'll have um, the TV panning, watching the other skips rock come into the house. As soon as the rock stops, I'm already going to be in the hack throwing my next shot. We've completely cut out the time in between where we could have discussed strategy, where the commentators could have added value to the broadcast. Um, and the athletes end up rushing for, uh, I would argue, not a good enough purpose um, and really the only teams you've helped along the whole way are the teams that play slow because they get to reset their clock every end. Whereas in our current method of timing, the teams that play slow get a deficit through end one, through end two. They keep losing more and more and more time. They reach the sixth end. Holy crap, we're out of time. And then they, they're the teams that get punished. Whereas now you're going to have fast teams. I would like to think myself being one of them who kind of indiscriminately get punished for playing one slow end in the middle of a game that we play pretty quick. And all of a sudden we're going to be rushing the skips rocks for really no good reason. I, I, I would be interested to hear Kevin's thoughts because I'm having a hard time racking my brain trying to come up with the positives on this one. You know, of course, um, I've always kind of <laughs> been on the different side of most things. And again, I, uh, I do actually, uh, I am excited to, to see the results of this. I know it was played in the Canada Cup. But, you know, in the 10 end game, and it didn't matter if it was last year in the bubble or before that, the first couple ends basically run them up and down. So, you know, for most viewers, myself included, there's no need to show up or tune in until the third or fourth end of a 10 end curling game. There's no need because the first two ends are going to be blanked. Maybe even the first three, three if the uh, person with hammer has their way, that way they have hammer and four. Usually the other team, you know, will throw a guard in the third end trying to force in three but the game doesn't really start till the third end in most cases so now will it change the first two ends being blanked i don't know i think it might but we'll have to wait and see 
but, but it may. And if it does, then it's money well spent. You know, if it doesn't, then we should revisit it again because you're right. The 10th end uh, could be altered maybe because only four minutes and 15 seconds. And most of those ends take around five minutes of thinking time. So you've cut down, you know, somewhere in the 45 second range. Um, the slow teams, I think Kevin Cooey's still going to have trouble finishing the ends. I know you didn't say his name, but that's who you were thinking. And uh, <laughs> so I kind of think, you know, they'll, they'll have to kind of evolve and change the way. I, th- I don't think your team will have any trouble. Uh, even if it was three and a half minutes, you'd be able to finish the ends. Uh, you know, looking back to the briar in the bubble with Wayne Madaw, there's no way that four minutes, he, he still have a minute left over. Um, he would never use it up. So, you know, it may force teams that skip by group, skip by team to change and maybe <laughs> let the skip do the thinking, maybe. Um, it'll be interesting. I'm excited to see it, actually, because uh, some of the ends uh, take far too long late in the game for no reason, in my opinion. But, but the, you know, if you have 20 minutes still on your clock, well, why not use it? So let's melt everybody in. And, and you know, what? Um, I'd like to see this play out. And, uh, you know, we can revisit it, Brennan, after a few events and hash it out again. And I'm open to that, too. I do uh, also see the value in, like you say, um, you have to be a little bit smarter when you have less time, right? Because not every shot can all four of you stand at the hog line and try and figure out what you're going to do. So in some ways, it will reward the teams that have more of a plan and are a little bit smarter and more concise in their decision making. Um, I just know from my experience, so when we tried it at the Canada Cup, we ran out of time twice. The first time we kind of looked at each other and had a laugh because we're a team that always plays so fast and how how the heck did we end up running out of time? Um, and then the second time I, I got pretty grumpy, like, this is not okay, right? Like, someone's got to be watching the clock. And because we usually play fast, we're not a team that's very familiar with watching the clock. And that is partly on us. That's a skill that, you know, we need to be better at. Um, so I'll be, I'll be interested to see how it pans out. I'm willing to go into it with an open mind. Um, I think some of the developing countries though, are are typically the countries that will take longer discussing strategy. And I would imagine they're the ones that are hurt more by by this rule. Brendan, all, all of this of course goes towards, you know, shortening up the, the game itself. What's your take on that, Brendan? Do do we need to shorten up? I, you know, the, the game drastically uh, from where it is now? Um, or, or do you think it's fine? Well, I think an eight-end curling game is right in line with some other competitive sports in terms of the window. Uh, obviously, I would be in favor of an eight-end curling game. I think almost every athlete would. I, I would imagine all the broadcasters would, so I'm a little surprised that hasn't happened yet. But there are ways you could make it more interesting. You could have a blank end flip hammer that would get rid of almost every blank end you could have a uh, cover the button is worth two points which would effectively get rid of every blank because the team with the hammer could try and draw the button every time and get their deuce Um, there there are some things you could do if the goal is to get rid of blank ends and make it more exciting like kevin said right off the hop Um, but the easiest way to shorten the the window is just to to only play eight ends well, Brendan, listen, thanks a lot for doing this. What's the, what's the prep for the big event this weekend? What, what are you doing? How are you getting ready for it? Sleeping? Do you guys have naps and all that jazz? Well, hopefully, yeah. I'm, I'm still working here a little bit. But we were down in Lacombe. Uh, we had a training camp this past weekend. Uh, so we all got lots of reps in. I think we're all throwing it pretty good. Um, and really, that's our, our formula. So I hope we can come out and have a good week here. And this is all a process here leading up these next few weeks so uh, you know hopefully we're playing good but hopefully we've left a little bit of room to to play our absolute best at the trials yet and i'm sure you will uh brendan congratulations on on a great year uh that you had last year of course and coming up this year we uh, look forward to seeing you kevin and i of course you know his son is on your team and and i'm an alberta guy so i'm not biased i want you to win everything so good good luck to you brendan all the best i'll take it thank you hey thanks brendan Thanks, Brandon. Good luck. Okay, now I think this is my favorite part of the show, you guys. Uh, We want to thank Meridian Manufacturing. 
your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling and proud sponsor of Storytime. Uh, who, who's going to go first in this fight that you guys had back in 2001? Uh, I Warren? think I might as well go first because okay. we kind of started it. <laughs> Kevin protested, broke away in 2001 with this big fight that he had from Curling Canada and dragged a bunch of teams uh, away. It's quite the story, actually. In, uh, it started in 1995. Um, we started an event at West Edmonton Mall because uh, curling for money had never really been done at a large way. It had done in Calgary in the curling club with the VO Cup. That was the Players' Championship, but it was done in a curling club. And anyway, so we went to West Edmonton Mall. L. Clouston was the fellow's name and myself. So anyway, we decided to run this event. It sold out. In West Edmonton Mall, we had black tie food and, and beverage service around the rink. We had sold out all of the corporate suites around the top of the mall ice area, if anybody knows West Edmonton Mall. It just set up terrific. Anyway, second year, we brought on a partner by the name of uh, Wild Bill Hunter. He tried to bring the St. Louis Blues to Saskatoon. Anyway, so then we run the West Edmonton Mall event in 96 and locked up TELUS as a big sponsor and then decided to go to Saskatoon in the Coliseum in Saskatoon and run the Flexicoil event, which was the biggest event then, a $60,000 first prize. Once those two were set up, actually, then um, Bill and L felt that it was conflict of interest for me to be playing in the events I own. So uh, they bought me out of the company, which was 100% fine. Um, they were right. What it proved to me is that the idea of arena curling for money would work. So anyway, I was invited down to Toronto to do a speech for IMG Canada. And Kevin Albrecht was the president of IMG Canada at the time. So we're just having a coffee BSing and, and uh, Kevin asked about curling. And we started talking about this idea that I had of a, a group of bond spiels, like a grand slam in, in golf or tennis in arena play. You know, we've already proved that playing for money would work. Kevin was intrigued because, uh, of course, his IMG International, Mark McCormick, who really thought about the PGA of America back in the 60s. So we started to go down that road in 1997, and we actually met with uh, the Canadian Curling Association at the time. And uh, we were willing to sell, we were willing to sell uh, the Canadian Curling Association 50% of the Grand Slam of Curling property that didn't exist yet for 25% of the Briar and Scotties, which of course they laughed and said, nobody is ever going to watch curling for money. And that's exactly what was said to IMG International when they brought the PGA idea to the USGA. And now of course, all these years later, the USGA has the US Open, but the PGA of America is a monster institution. So we have a good laugh after we leave the meeting because that was the end of that discussion. They basically you know, laughed us out the door that what we were doing would never work. And so Kevin went to work, got a title sponsor. There were four things that we really needed to do. And the reason for the 2001 boycott, uh, we needed to have scheduling changes. So all the provincials were at least two or three weeks only so that it didn't block all of the, the January, February season as it had in, in the past. We needed to have revenue sharing at the national championship at the Briar and the Scotties and not not payment, but revenue sharing. That's a very important thing. Um, so if an event in 1997 in Calgary where there was a ton of people and the players got paid a, a little, and it was 1300 our check as a team was $1,387 or something, um, we needed to have proper revenue sharing. We needed to have the players have a seat at the table at the uh, CCA, and then we needed to have sponsorship logos be allowed on our uniforms in provincial and national play. So those were the four things we we're asking for. And we got basically nowhere. So then we needed to have 18 of the top 20 teams in Canada sign on the dotted line that they would forego the playdowns uh, so that we could have Grand Slams in the playdown season. Otherwise, if everybody's going to play playdowns, there was no time after Christmas to implement these events. The schedule was full between all the different provincials and all the different things. So uh, that's how it happened. And uh, uh, we got the 18. We actually had 19 sign, actually. We had 19 sign. One team didn't sign because they were actually sponsored by the Briar. They actually wore on their arm the Briar logo, uh, one team. But 19 of 20 signed. And uh, one reneged on the, on the signature, which uh, that'll come into a book that I'll write at some point. Um, 
but we ended up with 18 out of 20. They offered a lot of the top players the world to make this go away because they knew we only had once the the fella reneged because he was promised something big. Then we only had 18, so they were promised the world to a pile of people, but uh, it didn't work. The guys stuck together. And so anyway, that's how the boycott started. Um, we just couldn't get the four things we needed. And uh, it didn't take long, though, once uh, the Briar didn't have 18 of the top 20 teams in it. Um, it didn't take long for Nokia to uh, walk away from that sponsorship. It was called the Nokia Briar back then. Uh, it, it didn't take long, but I'll tell you what, it was turbulent water. Uh, we did not have the media on our side, and uh, it was tough. It was tough sledding, but uh, it was for the right thing. And uh, now that people look back, it was it's obviously the right thing. The Grand Slam's a terrific property, and it's the best against the best arena play for money. It's fantastic. Well, actually, I think I went back in time once before in a show and to tell you where i was when all this news fell i was in regina doing a television survey for the olympic trials that were going to be there the following november so i think it was in april and um, that's when i heard about it and uh, yeah i was in a bit of shock uh, i guess because it's a rather complicated situation you know curling canada and all these provincial associations uh, they're political organizations, and so very difficult to, to – it's like trying to turn the Titanic in uh, the Panama Canal. It's slow and it's tedious, and certainly I understood the situation because, if you, as you may recall, I, I back in the 70s tried to organize the players group at that point in time to, to begin to do the same type of things Kevin is talking about then. And to get them, it was always I wanted – immediately as soon as you say Players Association, you're taking on Curling Canada. And it was never intended to be that from day one. And in fact, was I, I always saw that the Canadian Curling Association then should have been working in lockstep with the players uh, because the goals were the same, but maybe in little different directions. And the fact that the top players always have got little different uh, desires in the game than, than the average player, and that needs to kind of be held separately. And one of the problems with curling, and still exists today, is we try to lump everybody in Canada into this one-size-fits-all scenario and we don't say the top players are in a special segment we've got to deal with them differently and to become in that segment you've got to do the following to get there just like you do to qualify for the PGA Tour. So I saw it all we had we had worked fairly hard through the 90 trying to, to turn the wheel to a very large degree and a number of things had happened I mean Russ Howard led a group in 1997 I think Kevin was a, a signature on that document as well where they actually sued the Canadian Curling Association, for the right to have athletes own cresting on a uniform at the Briar. And, and of course, they, they lost that, but it was an, an interesting decision, as I remember, that came down from the court. And I think that item alone threw another log on the fire to push Kevin and these other guys to, to, to make the move that they finally did. It was a complicated time. It was Curling had gone through the, the 80s, and that was kind of the good times. Labatt's were the title sponsor, the Briar. Scott Paper were with the, with the, with the Scotties event. Labatt's left, more or less, the Briar in 1994. We were advised in 1992 that after 94 Briar, they were going to go. Um, we managed to keep them there in a capacity for another five years, but it certainly wasn't the type of sponsorship that had existed in the 80s. And things were changing. And as a result, the Canadian Curling Association was kind of in a difficult position in 1994 when Labatt's made that announcement. And so... A marketing company was brought on board with Curling Canada, then the Canadian Curling Association, the St. Clair Group. And the Canadian Curling Association in 1995 virtually sold the rights to all their major events to the St. Clair Group. So when this whole fight that was going on, it was Kevin was talking from 97 to 2000 and into 2001, there was a third party involved here, which was the St. Clair Group, and they owned all the rights. And uh, so Curling Canada was sitting there in a very difficult position of trying to move this whole thing in, or I was anyway, in a direction where I saw it had to go, but nobody was budging. And uh, for sure, the St. Clair Group locked in. They were paying the Canadian Curling Association a rights fee to own all these properties, and they wanted it under their terms and conditions, understandably so. But of course, on the other side of the coin was the players. And the big issue was the athlete cresting, as, as I recall, and the money aspect, as Kevin had already mentioned, the Briar players weren't getting much uh, out of it in any way, shape, or form. A little bit more than it was in my days, but not a lot. And, and the big issue, again, being that they could not wear their own uh, sponsor logos on the uniform. So in the end, that was uh, 
what brought the whole thing to an end and head. And, of course, uh, Kevin and a group of top players uh, headed off in the direction of starting virtually what became the Grand Slam. Um, it's rather interesting as I look back through time. So in discussions that took place after 2001, um, money was put into the Briar and the Scotties to a fairly significant degree. That part of it did change. But the one thing that still hasn't changed is the athlete cresting thing here in 2021. Uh, that still hasn't been resolved. And I look at that as being a major issue. I did back then. It was supposed to have been resolved, but it never was. And I think today that's still something that's got to be taken care of that hasn't been. I'm not sure I've I've heard of a sport that uh, people are talking about so many changes that need to be done from how long the game is to the WCF rules to how you qualify, how you get to the Olympics, what should be the format of all these stuff. Uh, it it really is a a big time for change, Kev, in the sport. Well, it's just it's a big time for our sport. It's uh, one of the fastest growing sports in the world right now. And uh, with that, you know, we've got a lot more nations coming in, and uh, our sport is in such a healthy spot right now, Jim. And and change is part of that. So yes, as we grow, things have to change, and there is a lot on the table. And but that's a good thing. This is all good. Like this is a great discussion when you've got a sport growing like ours right now. We need to accept change and keep evolving because it's going to evolve. It just is because it's growing so fast. And, you know, that's, that's, there's nothing negative about it. It's just, you know, people like, uh, like us, we got to keep beating the drum so that things continue to change, get better. And, and, and we continue to grow worldwide more and more and more. It's wonderful. Well, that's a wrap, fellas. Uh, good job. Way to go. You both get, uh, which I never got in school, the happy face uh, for a good effort. <laughs> uh, but you guys both did. Thanks a lot, Kevin, and thank you, Warren. Uh, you've been listening to Inside Curling. Get a hold of us, insidecurling at gmail.com. If you want us to do a Zoom call, uh, we'd love to do that. We've, uh, we've done a bunch of them up to now, and you're a curling club or a group of people who want to get together. Kevin and Warren and I would love to get together and do a Zoom call with you. Uh, thanks, for everyone, for listening. We also want to thank... Rod Paulson from In-House Strategies, who does a bunch of our uh, social media stuff. If you need the services of Rod, let us know and we'll, we'll get in touch. Well done, fellas. Thanks a lot, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. <laughs>